This afternoon, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open them up to Isaiah uh, chapter 42. Isaiah 42, I'd like to read together the first uh, seven verses with you. Beautiful verses that stand as a prophecy pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. There we read these words. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor am I praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So far the reading of God's word. Well, if you could turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 5, I'd like to look at the first 21 verses of Ephesians 5. This is really, uh, in some ways, part two of a, a sermon that I started last week um, in my home church, beginning at chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, Pastor Bill and I have been working through the book of Ephesians, and I believe that you heard part of that this morning as well. Um, to understand this, you need to understand a little bit of the context. In Ephesians um, 1 through 3, it, Paul is really working out the, the beauty of the gospel. He's working out kind of the, the, the riches of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. They're incredibly powerful chapters. Then in chapter 4, Paul kind of transitions uh, to make the point that the church is the vessel that God has chosen to entrust with the gospel. The church is the instrument that God is using to make Christ known in the world. And then after that, he begins this prolonged section, starting in the middle of chapter 4, where he really walks through practically what that looks like, what it looks like to make Christ known, whether that's as individuals, as the church, in our marriages, or in our parenting. And so that's really where you find yourself as you get into Ephesians chapter 5. So let's read the first 21 verses together. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So far the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I have to admit that this particular section of Ephesians that I have been preaching through over the last couple of weeks have been some of the most difficult verses that I've covered in my time of ministry. It's not my usual routine or custom, but I was still up quite late last night, just, just wrestling with the content of this passage. And I think it's because these words, they touch on some incredibly uncomfortable parts of our lives. And it seems like this portion of Ephesians is just this barrage of do-nots. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Right? I'll be getting back in Ephesians 4, Verse 17, Paul talks about you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He talks about how you must not give yourself over to sensuality. How in your anger you must not sin. How you must not give the devil a foothold. He talks about how you must not have any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. It's just one thing after another. Don't do this. And by the time I'd finished preaching Ephesians 4 last week, it kind of felt like like your soul had been, been ripped raw, like all of your weaknesses and your struggles had been exposed. And you kind of went, wow, that's a lot. And then you flip to Ephesians 5, and it's almost as if Paul starts all over again. He has such an emphasis on this, in this section on, on the need to pursue holy lives 
And you wonder, Paul, like, why such an emphasis on holy living? And I think to truly understand this portion of Ephesians, you need to understand something about the culture of Ephesus. Right? Ephesus was a, a, a very important city within the province of Asia. It was the capital of the province of Asia within uh, the Roman Empire. And it was a tremendously wealthy city. It was a, a port city. It had tons of trade and commerce that flowed through it because it sat on trade routes, both by land and by sea. And then on top of that, there was the great temple of Artemis, which is recognized as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And while the Greco-Roman world allowed for the worship of a multitude of deities, a multitude of gods, Artemis was arguably the most prominent. And so people would flock from all over the Roman Empire, and they would come to worship her. And surrounding all of this, the city of Ephesus was mired in a, a general culture of immorality. There were common feasts and banquets and processions and parties and promiscuity and prostitution. This was just part of the general way of life. And so the issue that Paul is wrestling with as he instructs the Ephesians is he's instructing them really on, on how they can be the church, how they can be the body of Christ within a context and within a culture like that. And his answer is to encourage them to demonstrate that there's a better way to live. And that is the way of Christ. And so this afternoon... I'd like us to consider the way of Christ and the way in which Christ leads us in the way of love, in the way of wisdom, and in the way of thanksgiving. If you look at the end of chapter 4, you'll notice that it ends with these words, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And these verses at the end of chapter 4, they almost act as a, as a springboard that are now, it's now going to launch us into chapter 5. Right? Because of these things, Paul says, therefore. And, and what I think is important to recognize is that in the midst of all of this instruction on Christian living and all of these commands, Paul is always rooting things in the gospel. It's always about God's grace. He wants to emphasize to the Ephesians that their love for others must flow out of God's love for them. And he goes on then in chapter 5, verse 1, and says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. I find it interesting to note that Paul does not say, be imitators of God so that you can become dearly loved children. He doesn't say be imitators of God so that you can be worthy of being loved children. Instead, he begins by saying, be imitators of God because you are dearly loved. 
and walk in love. He says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. At the very heart of the Christian life is the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. That is what drives us. That is what drives our thoughts and our words and our actions. It is what drives our walk and our talk and our worship because the simple fact is that without the love of God in Jesus Christ, we have nothing, we are nothing, and we can do nothing. And this is a point that Paul has already been making to the Ephesians back in chapter 2. He began chapter 2 by, by reminding them that they were dead in their transgressions and sins in which they once lived when they walked in the ways of the world. And he says to them, just like the rest, just like everyone else, you are by nature deserving of wrath. And then he has that incredible verse, Ephesians 2.4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. When we think of the Christian life and what it means to walk in the way of love, it's helpful perhaps to think of it even in terms of something simple like a river. If we were to take the St. Lawrence River, for example, it flows, it flows from Lake Ontario down to Quebec City. But if you remove Lake Ontario from the equation, everything from here to Quebec City will run dry. But if Lake Ontario is in the equation, if that source is there, the water will run to Quebec City. It doesn't have to think about it. It, it doesn't actually even have to try that hard. If the source is there, the water is going to flow down and the same is true of the Christian life. If we are anchored, anchored in the love of God, if we are looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are intent on His sacrifice, if we, if we have that picture in our minds of, of Him on the cross ripping open the floodgates of heaven so that the love of God would flow down into our lives, if we see the Lord Jesus, and his love for us, the natural result is that that love is going to flow out of us. And his sacrifice is going to shape our sacrifice and our desire to love others. If I think of Romans 12, for example, verse 1, Paul again is driving home a similar point. He says, therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The way of love, the way of, of real gospel love, is the way of loving others selflessly and sacrificially and unconditionally. 
And if there is one place where that love should be able to be experienced, where people should be able to come and to taste and to know what the love of Christ is like, it should be here in the church. And we don't want to tolerate anything, anything that would compromise the character and the nature of that love. That's why Paul goes on in verse 3, and he says this. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Paul lists these three things. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Covetousness is is really just a a verb that describes... a general sense of always wanting more. And he says, these things, I don't, I don't want them to be identified. I, I don't want them to be named. I don't, them to, I don't want them to be, to be part of who you are. Which begs the question, why? Because they are contrary to the character of the gospel. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ was all about pursuing what God wanted regardless of the personal cost. But these things, they are all about pursuing what we want regardless of the cost to others. Ephesus was mired in, in, in a culture of self-indulgence. In, instead of seeking the good of others, there, there, there was a whole lot about that culture that was about pursuing what you wanted by taking advantage of others. The city was well known for these feasts and these banquets and these parties and the processions and the promiscuity and the prostitution, but the reality is that much of that happened at the expense of the most vulnerable in society. Women, children, and slaves. Instead of uh, seeing them as, as those created in the image of God and honoring and respecting them, they were often viewed as objects, as things to be used for profit and for pleasure. And Paul's saying, these things, we, as God's people, we don't want to have anything to do. We don't want to have any part of anything that contributes to a culture like that. In fact, he's so serious about it that he says in verse 4, we don't even talk about it. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. And I think as God's people today, we do need to give some thought to the application of these verses. Because we also live in a culture of self-indulgence. In fact, I think we live in a culture that actually celebrates self-indulgence. And if you were to watch 
Even things like, like the late night shows, whether it's a, a Jimmy Kimmel or a Jimmy Fallon, whether you, when you look at these things, it, it, it's celebrated. And, and the nature of those shows would be things like filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking and a lot of sexual innuendo because you can, you, you, you can put this out there as if it's just harmless pleasure. As if we're, we're just promoting people having a good time. But you have to understand that when you promote a culture of self-indulgence, it always comes at a human cost. Right? If we think of sexual immorality, if you take something like pornography, which is often just thrown out as harmless pleasure, there are undeniable statistics linking the increased use of pornography to increased rates of abuse. I read an article in the New York Times from 2019 and they stated that in 2019, in that year alone, there were 45 million images shared of children, minors, being exploited and abused. That was double the previous year. There are undeniable statistics which link increased rates of suicide to those involved in sex trade and sex work. When you promote a culture of self-indulgence somewhere, there is always a human cost. And so as God's people, the reason why we don't want to be involved with this, the reason why we, we, we want these things to be absent is because that's not loving. These things are not loving to God, and they are not loving to our neighbor. In this world which holds up a counterfeit love, we want to offer an authentic gospel love. In a culture that promotes self-indulgence, we want to promote self-sacrifice. When we see things like this where there are vulnerable people being exploited, we want to be the body, the body of Christ, his hands and his feet that are helping those who are vulnerable and exploited. It's not our place to judge the culture. But Paul is insistent that God will. These are incredibly hard verses in verse 5 and 6. When he says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that isn't an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Anyone who's leading this life without remorse, without regret, without repentance, without turning to Christ. Paul says, don't let them deceive you with empty words, but because of the fact that one day they will stand before God. It's not our place to judge. That's God's role. But it is our calling to love others the way that Christ has loved us. And Jesus wept over the needs and hurts of others. Jesus was moved compassion by, by the brokenness and by the struggles. 
And he was always so full of grace towards those who were either trapped in sins of self-indulgence or who had been guilty of sins of self-indulgence. You think of the story of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. This woman who was married five times and now is with another man, her sixth. And Christ shows her love. You think of the woman in John 8 who is caught in the act of adultery and who is dragged out in the public square. She's, she's there to be shamed. And Christ shows her grace. The thief on the cross in Luke 23 who spent this, this life pursuing and taking the things that he wanted. And yet Christ shows him grace. Right? Jesus Christ is the refuge. He is, he is that safe place where the sinful and the broken and the hurting and the struggling can come to truly be loved with the love of God, an authentic love. And as the church, as the body of Christ, we want to strive to love others in exactly the same way. It's what it means to walk in the way of love. That's where Paul spends the first seven verses. I'm going to jump ahead to the next ten verses. And I want to reflect on what it means to walk in the way of wisdom. If the first seven verses are really about the, the, the heart and, and the character of love, then in some ways the, the next ten verses are about really practically living out that love. And I think you could summarize that section really with the words of verse 15 through 17, where Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, as I reflected on these verses last night, I, I was struck by something. It's interesting that Paul has spent a lot of time talking about the darkness that, that, that's kind of surrounding the Ephesian culture. He's named these things, sexual immorality and impurity. He's talked about covetousness and foolish talk and coursing, and he names these things. It's clear that there is a lot of darkness but in the middle of all that darkness, Paul sees a huge gospel opportunity. And I think that's healthy for us to remember. Because even for myself, I, I, I find it's easy to look at things that are dark. It's easy to see darkness in my own life. It's easy uh, to, to see darkness in the world around us. We turn on the news and we're just, wham, we're confronted with it. The world sometimes can seem so dark but that also presents us with a huge gospel opportunity because it is in the darkness that the light shines brightest. Right? Notice what Paul says in verse 7 and 8. He says, Do not become partakers, partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
In many ways, Paul here in these verses is, is simply capturing Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. If you think of Jesus in Matthew 5, he says this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus with this encouragement and his prayer and his desire that they would let their light shine in such a way that God receives glory. They would live in a way that God's name is held with with honor and respect. This is not simply about doing good deeds. I think we need to be careful as Christians because we we can sometimes easily satisfy ourselves with with the thought that, well, we've done good things, but if we understand this passage, it's talking about being imitators of God. And if God is light and we are called to be children of the light, then, then this is about embodying in our lives His character. It's not about doing good things, but it's about actually developing a character of goodness. It's about developing a character of righteousness, a character of truth, so that whether we're in this situation or that situation or that situation, that we will be able to understand and determine what the Lord's will is. And to do that, you need wisdom. And you need the spirit of wisdom. You need the spirit of the wisdom of God, of Jesus Christ, to reign in your heart and to open the eyes of your heart so that you could see. In fact, this is what Paul prays for in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians 1 verse 17, or 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This passage, Paul's not telling the Ephesians to live these kind of lives so that people can look at the Ephesians and say, wow, they're great people. What a wonderful bunch. He's encouraging to live this way so that they would encounter something of the character and the glory of God. He's encountering them to live boldly for Jesus Christ so that in the way that they live, they would encounter something of the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I don't know about you, but I have to admit that I don't always shine the light of Jesus the way that I should. I don't always do it in my home. I don't always do that as a pastor. I don't even do that always as just a friend and a neighbor. There are are times 
There are times, in fact, even when you encounter a situation that seems so dark, where there's so much wrong, that you almost despair, that you're almost tempted to just kind of put your light under the bowl, as Jesus says. And I think it's so important this afternoon that we remember, that we remember the power of the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, that we remember the words of John 1.5 where it says that the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it because the light drives out darkness. But in order to be this community that shines the light into the lives of those around us, we also need to be willing to shine the light into the community. And Paul speaks to this in verse 11, he says in verse 11, speaking here really to the church community, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. It is so important, it is so important that the church be a place where these deeds of darkness can be brought into the light. Where that, where that is possible so that others would feel confident enough to bring their deeds into the light. Our conversations cannot simply be about the weather and politics and the Leafs. We need to be willing to have real gospel conversations with each other. We need to be willing to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ even into those dark, uncomfortable areas of our lives. We, we must be the place that can do that. We must be willing to be challenged and to challenge when it comes to areas where there are concerns about weaknesses and struggles. Not to condemn. Not to judge. Certainly not to gossip. But to help and to heal because it is in the light of Jesus Christ that you will find freedom. If you think of the words of John in 1 John 1, he says this, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. God is light, and if we walk in his word, if his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, then we will be led in the way of wisdom, and collectively, we will grow to be more like Christ. Let me conclude and I'll be brief with 
Just one more point, the way of thanksgiving. If you look at verse 18, this is a theme that Paul began already in verse 4, but in verse 18 he says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think Paul's concern in these last words begins already in verse 15, when he says, look carefully how you walk. Look carefully how you walk. And the reason why is because he wants you to make the best use of your time. That we would actually take every moment captive for Christ, that we would, that we would use every moment as an opportunity to give glory to God. And that we would not squander our time. And Paul, in these closing words, he seems to be drawing a distinction between really the, 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 the nature of the gatherings that would happen in Ephesus and, and the nature of gatherings that would happen within the Christian community. Again, you, you have to recall that within the larger context, this Greco-Roman world, this, this was the world of these feasts and these banquets and, and often drinking that would lead to debauchery and this recklessness and all sorts of sin. And so Paul says, don't live that way. Don't, don't be fueled by drinking because that's where it's going to lead you. Instead, the, the, the gathering of God's people ought to be different and, and you ought to be fueled by the Spirit and it will lead to something entirely different. It will lead to a culture of praise and a culture of worship and a culture of thanksgiving. In some ways, you could say that what we do here on Sundays as Christians is it's, this is like the gas station of, 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 of the Christian life. This is the place that we come to be filled. And I mean, certainly, I, I hope it's not just here, right? Every analogy falls short, but but, but this is about being filled with the Spirit. This is about being fed with God's Word in such a way that it begins to drive our worship. So that when we come here, we have, we have an encounter with the presence of God, that we are, that we are drawn to a place where we, we're, we, we give glory to God. That we would speak to each other, as Paul says, with these psalms, with these hymns, and these spiritual songs. And the idea is that is that as we worship, as we give glory to God, that we're also mutually encouraging each other. As we worship, as we experience this fellowship, as we experience the encounter with God, this filling with the Spirit, that our hearts would actually make music to the Lord, that we would be thankful for everything that He's given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that would then compel us to, to live for one another, to submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. That ought to be the character, the heart of our worship. 
I read a book this past summer by David Platt, a pastor whose um, preaching and teaching has been an encouragement to me. He's pastor of McLean Bible Church in Washington, D.C. It's a rather large church. And he took a trip uh, to Nepal on a missions trip, wrote a book called Something Needs to Change. And while he was in Nepal, he was in a, in a very remote um, mountain village. He'd spent the whole day hiking up to this village, and he was asked if he was willing to lead worship that evening. He said, yes. It was late in the evening, and he was wondering when church was going to start, and he looked down the hill only to notice that there were these wee little lamps coming up the hill. And when he asked about it, he discovered that the people coming to church were hiking after work two hours in the dark up the mountain. And they came together to assemble in a tiny little house, shoulder to shoulder, without any room. And they all gathered with lanterns, opening up God's word, sharing a meal together, being encouraged together. And Platt talks about how in that moment, he recognized that he'd, he'd lost something of the simplicity and the character of church. He said this, and I quote, It's surprisingly simple when you think about it. Not easy, but simple. This church had so little of the things that you and I think about when it comes to church in our culture. They don't have a great band. They don't have a charismatic preacher. They don't have any programs. They just have each other. God's word in front of them and God's spirit among them. And apparently, that's enough. I think we could say that that is enough for a tiny church in the mountains of Nepal. It is enough for this small church in the great city of Ephesus. And it is enough for the church here in Ancaster. Amen.